Thank you, worship team. I'm going to ask everybody that brought a Bible or you got one on your phone to open up to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. And in case you haven't figured it out, I'm up here preaching today because Pastor Jeremy and Kirsten are on a, on a well-deserved vacation. Uh, this past week in our life group lessons, Pastor Jeremy reminded us how important it is to keep on preaching the gospel, even to those who already profess to know Jesus, to follow Jesus. Um, we're going to put Romans 1.16, I think, up on the big screen, if my slides are available, uh, or, or they'll catch up with us in a moment. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And if you believe it, say amen. Amen. We're not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is good news that this generation and the next generation and the generation that follows still desperately needs to hear. But how can they hear it if those who believe it aren't proclaiming it? And you know, I want to say that's a big part of why I'm grateful to be a part of this church family. We understand our mission. It's not simply to know Christ, but also to make him known. We're intentionally becoming a church that is made up of people who are molded by God's word and motivated by God's glory as we make disciples throughout God's world. And though you might not feel qualified to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others, if you have personally experienced his life-transforming love, you are. doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. doesn't matter how much you think you know or don't know. You can share this good news. And uh, I was talking with Pastor uh, a week or two ago or three ago about a tool that is helpful for people to use in remembering how to share the gospel. It's published by Dare to Share. And when Pastor Jeremy was a youth pastor, he used to take uh, young people to evangelism training using this tool. We're going to put it up on the big screen. It's using the letters G-O-S-P-E-L to remember the six points of the gospel. Okay, And this is printed on the insert in your bulletin this morning so you can take it with you. And I really urge you to keep it, refer to it, reflect on it, and ask God to help you make this your own. Unless, of course, you already have a great way of sharing the gospel with others. But I'm going to quick run through it with you so you see it's not too hard. The gospel begins with letter G. Who? God. Yeah. What's the first sentence in the Bible say, in the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. So the gospel begins with God. He made the heavens, the highest heavens. He made the earth and sea and all that is in them. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. And, and we have been created by God to know him, to love him, and to worship him. So that's G, right? Begins with God. God created us to be with him, to know him, to love him. Uh, next, the letter O is our sins. Our sins separate us from God. Is that a true statement? Yes. And you know what? People around the world 
tend to understand this. They tend to know it. That's why religion is so popular. Religion is what people do in order to, they think, earn enough good merits or good works to outweigh the bad things that they have done in life. Religion, a matter of works. The problem is sins can never be removed by any amount of good deeds. In fact, the Bible says if you want to impress God with your righteousness compared to his holiness and his majesty, it's about as attractive as filthy rags. In other words, it's not very impressive, right? Next on the outline, P, paying the price for our sin. Jesus died and rose again. And again, you can personalize this and put it in your own words, but how about, how about this? You were walking down a road and didn't realize it, but a big truck was coming your way, and someone ran out and pushed you out of the way so you would be saved, and instead they died. Well, in a way, let's think about what Jesus did for us. The wrath of God was barreling down on us, and he chose to get us out of the way and receive in himself the penalty we each deserve for rejecting God's reign and rebelling against his rule. E, this is where we get to the good, the good news. Everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. Uh, when we were reading from Ephesians chapter 2, right at the beginning of the service, we reminded ourselves what God's word says. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in who? Christ alone. Yeah, that's the good news of the gospel. And then the L, life with Jesus starts now and lasts how long? Forever. That's the good news. And we need to remind ourselves, even as we tell others, the good news of the gospel. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 9, starting at verse 1. And I'm going to read through verse 12. As he passed by, he saw a man, blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Amen. You may be seated. And 
Before I get going in this message too far, I'm going to pause for a moment and ask you to pray with me. Lord, just as Mark prayed a, a few moments ago, we understand that we are incredibly blessed. We also understand that we are needier than we often realize. And how grateful we are that you've given us in your word the truth. Jesus, you tell us in your word that you are the way, the truth, and the life. You say no one comes to the Father except through you, and, and we believe it. And today we're making our hearts available to you, that you can teach us and encourage us and help us understand not only who we are in your eyes, but who you intend for us to be. So Spirit, soften our hearts and give me the words that you want our church family to hear. We pray this together in our Savior's name. Amen. Okay, if you have that outline and you want to use it, you can see there's four parts to this morning's message. And the first is this. Jesus is looking. Looking for opportunities to change lives. Verse 1 says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, where was Jesus going as he passed by? Where was he going? Well, if you look at the end of chapter 8, you'll see that if chapter 9 begins where verse 8 leaves off, Jesus had just a few moments before almost been murdered. He had, in, a, in essence, declared himself to be God, saying before Abraham was born, I am. And the religious leaders didn't like it. They picked up stones to kill him, to put him to death. And Jesus hid himself from them. And after he leaves the temple, where his opponents had sought to bring his life to a sudden end, he is just, it seems, passing by. Doesn't go into hiding. He and his disciples don't run from the temple. Instead, they pass by. And as they do, it says, verse 1, that they see someone. And it's, this someone is a man, the text says, had not simply lost his eyesight. This man had been blind from birth. Jesus is looking for opportunities to change lives. Now, the fact that Jesus saw someone shouldn't surprise any of us. He sees everybody, and he sees and knows everything. And that being the case, I think it's good to ask ourselves, who and what does he see when he looks at us? Who does Jesus see when he looks at you? Uh, remember when at God's command, the prophet Samuel went to the house of Jesse? He was looking to anoint one of the sons of Saul to be the next king, and, and Samuel was impressed with these young men whom Jesse was parading before him. And that's when God told his servant, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Do you, do you believe that's true? He can see past what you appear to be to others and know who you truly are. So when Jesus looks at you, does he see a heart into which he's already been welcomed? Does he see a heart in which his spirit lives? 
I hope so, but I can also say this. If not, this can be the day of your salvation. This can be the day you turn from your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ and the finished work of the cross. Again, the text says this man had been blind from birth. A true statement, right? We know the word of God is true. But I also love this. As followers of Jesus Christ, you and I are no longer defined by what we don't have, but instead by who we are, and even better yet, whose we are. Well, whose are we? According to John chapter 1, verse 12, I am God's child. John 15, verse 15, Jesus tells me that I am his friend. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 bears witness to the truth that along with all the rest of you who profess Jesus as Savior and Lord, I am a member of Christ's body. And of course, the wonder of our identity in Jesus Christ goes much further and deeper than even this. Think about that. How wonderful it is to belong to our Savior. You know, um, I'm getting up there a little bit more in years. Maybe our bodies don't work as well as they used to. Maybe we can't hear or see or walk or even remember as well as when we were younger. But Colossians 2 verse 10 says, I am complete in Christ. Isn't that good news? You want to say that with me? Profess it? I am complete in Christ. I'm not defined by my disabilities, by what I can't do. And the reason why is I'm a child of God. That's who he sees when he looks at me. And if you have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that's who he sees when he looks at you. And I was just sense and believe, and some of you needed to be reminded of that this morning. And there might be others among us who say, Pastor, I, I think it sounds great, and it's probably right, but right now I can tell you I am not yet a part of God's forever family. Well, if that's true, be encouraged, because again, Jesus is still looking for opportunities to change lives. And I'm an example. He changed my life, and he wants to change yours. He will if you let him. Okay, second part of what we're going to see in this passage is that it's easier for us, often easier for us as followers of Jesus Christ, to express curiosity than it is for us to display compassion. We'll get there in a moment. It's easier for us as followers of Jesus Christ to express curiosity than to display compassion. Verse 2, verse 2 here. Upon seeing this man, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Who sinned, this man or, or his mom and dad? You know, you, you read that, and, and it becomes quite clear that our Savior's men were not so much interested in this blind man's problem potentially going away as they were in determining what exactly caused it. 
And that's sort of understandable because back in Bible times, the rabbis taught that all suffering was a consequence of sin. And I guess in the biggest, the big pictures, it all is. Ever since the fall, we've been dealing with disease and death and sickness and sorrow on account of the first man's sin. But the question the disciples asked wasn't content in assigning blame all the way back to Adam. Instead, they were focusing on this man and this mom's, this man's mom and dad. And as a result, they didn't feel it was out of place to ask the question, who sinned, this man or his parents? I've had enough time to, to know I was preaching on this passage. I've been thinking on it and meditating on it for quite a while. And as I got to this path, part of the passage, I just tried to imagine what it all looked like. Where were Jesus and his disciples standing in relation to this man whom they had noticed? I believe, based on what's going to happen in the following verses, that they were probably close enough that they could have reached out and touched this man they were talking about. Remember, again, if, if chapter 9 begins where chapter 8 left off, they had just left the temple. And this blind man, who was dependent upon the charity of his countrymen, had probably discovered, after years and years of doing it, that the place where he could probably receive more gifts than others, where people passing by would have been more generous than in other parts of their city, was right here outside the temple. So again, Jesus and his men probably standing right next to this guy. And if that's the case, it seems that his disciples were either assuming that someone who couldn't see also couldn't hear, or that it was simply okay for them to stand around talking about him rather than to him. Do you ever find yourself doing that? Standing around talking about people rather than to them. Well, I think that's why Jesus answers this question the way he did. Because he knew that this man had heard countless pronouncements and accusations as he sat waiting on the kindness of strangers and that this man needed to hear a bit of good news. He needed to gain the perspective of God the Son. And church, isn't that what we all need to know what God intends for us, what he says to be true, to know his perspective? So verse 3, Jesus answers... And Jesus says it was not this man that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I love that. You know, the disciples asked the question, but this answer was as much for the blind man as it was for Peter and James and John and the rest of our Savior's crew. He wanted that man to hear that the works of God would be displayed in him and through him. Same time as I say that, I also want you to know this. Jesus here does not say that no suffering is caused by sin. Jesus doesn't say that. Why? Because sometimes it certainly is. 
I came across some news uh, a year or two or three ago. I, I see it updated from time to time. That was absolutely stunning the first time I heard it. And that news is this. Right now, in America, there are 110 million people who have a sexually transmitted disease. Right now in America, one out of every three of us, numbers from Center for Disease Control, have a sexually transmitted disease. Now, it is pretty difficult for you to get a sexually transmitted disease if you decide to wait until your wedding night and your, your spouse chooses to wait until your wedding night before you first experience physical intimacy. Some of the suffering we experience as human beings comes as a result of our own sin. And, and we could list countless other examples of how sin causes suffering. And yet Jesus is telling this blind man, and, and, and since it's included here in John's gospel, making sure that we all hear this as well, that suffering is also a God-given opportunity to see the glory of God demonstrated in our own lives. Again, Jesus said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Awesome message. You know, I, I think to a person, every one of us would agree that this blind man, he needed a major league miracle. You know, again, it wasn't that he had lost his sight. His eyes, if he had eyes, had never, ever worked. And, and that's why I'm sure his ears had to perk up and his heart stopped pounding in his chest as he listened to our Savior speak. Because he wanted to experience God's work in his life. He wanted to. So I got a question for you. How, how about us? How much do we want to see Jesus at work in our lives? Are, are we intent on seeing the works of God displayed in us and through us or the lives of those we know or are our friends and family, our, our classmates and our, and our co-workers. I've told some of you this story, but everybody gets to hear it today. Uh, my mom, when she was a little girl, she contracted the polio virus. Most of you know what polio virus does. It paralyzes you. It's very, very infectious. It was during the Second World War. Her dad worked in a shipyard in Duluth, Minnesota, and for a period of weeks, my mom had to live in a room in the hospital. And, and she said, I, I could see my mom and dad, when they come to see me, look through a little window in the door. But she had to be separated, kept apart from anybody else, so they wouldn't contract this same virus. My mom had a hero. Her hero's name is Dr. Jonas Salk. Anybody know why Dr. Salk is my mom's hero? 
Yeah, he's the guy that came up with the vaccine that prevented other people from contract, uh, contracting this, this deadly virus. So he became my mom's hero. I tell all of you that because though we don't think about it this way, as human beings, you and I have also been infected with something far, far worse than polio. It's the deadly virus of sin, of, for which there's absolutely, church, no cure apart from Jesus and his shed blood, and which left untreated and unforgiven results in an eternity spent suffering in the midst of the flames of hell. Yet unlike most people who have a physical disease, like my mom when she had polio, most people afflicted by sin whose hearts are stained with wickedness have no desire to be cured of sin's curse. Why? Why is that? Well, part of it is that our adversary has blinded them to the truth. And some have labored hard to convince themselves that they're immune to the deadly and destructive consequences of their rebellion against God. They might convince themselves of that, but they're not accurate because nobody is. And that's why we need the gospel. Sadly, I, I think there's also many people who have heard the gospel all before and, and perhaps even believe with the, the simple facts of the gospel you know, that outline we put up on the big screen. And yet, as of today, they have no intention of coming to Jesus to be saved. Why? Well, the answer is maybe more complicated than this, but in large part, is because they are convinced it's okay to love their own sin more than they love their own souls. So if you're surrounded by people that you work with, that you go to school with, that you live by, perhaps members of your family who say, I'm not interested or for whatever reason have pushed off a time of making a decision for Christ, is it okay if, if we think they kind of know the facts just to stay silent? It's not okay, church. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So you and I need to keep proclaiming the truth, whatever a person's age or stage in life is. And that's part of why we put that Dare to Share presentation in your bulletin. It's a tool that's been developed to help people like you and me be able to share the gospel. Um, years ago, some of you are familiar with this, years ago, a survey was taken of born-again believers, and they discovered that on average, people had heard the gospel completely seven times before the door of their heart was open and they were able to respond in faith. Seven times. Um, if you thought back through your life, I'm, I'm sure you'd see pictures of different individuals in your life that had a part in you coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And while it's true that most of us come to faith before our 18th birthday, I've seen plenty of people in their 60s and 70s and 80s who after perhaps hearing the gospel countless other times in their lives finally turn from their sins and believe the good news. And as a result, they experience 
the works of God being displayed in their lives. Okay, now to verse 4. Next part of the Lord's answer, this one was definitely for his disciples. Do you remember what constitutes a disciple? A disciple is a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. So these words are also meant for most of us. Jesus is telling us, starting in verse 4, that Christianity is not a spectator sport. Verse 4 says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So who is the light of the world today, church? Not a trick question. Who's the light of the world today? Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Jesus says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. We're light bearers for our Savior But you and I, representing him, bring the light of the gospel into dark places today. Jesus said, you and I must work the works of him who sent me. That means it's not just up to the professionals. You know, I'm grateful to sit under the teaching of Pastor Jeremy every Sunday. And we get opportunities throughout the week to look at what the word of God says, to pray for you, uh, to discuss issues going on in the church and in our community and how we as believers can make a difference. So I'm grateful for our pastor, but it's not up to Pastor Jeremy and myself. Yes, we have a role to play, but Ephesians 4.12 says our role is to equip you for the work of ministry. You know, it's the intention of Jesus Christ, part of his design for the church that we all be involved in some sort of ministry. Part of that ministry is going to be to each other in the body of Christ, but it certainly can't be limited there. When, when Jesus gave us a great commission, the first word of it is to go. We need to be going, and as we go, taking Jesus with us to people who still don't know our Savior. And where do we go? Who do we minister to? Well, anybody who doesn't yet know the Savior needs the Savior. But I will say two groups of people who seem to be especially open to the good news of the gospel are people who are either going through a transition in life or who are experiencing great tension in their life. People are going through those parts of what it means to be a human being tend to be asking questions that only God can answer. Not limiting our outreach, our love, and our efforts to them, but especially be aware of that. And if you don't yet know what your role or ministry is, I'm going to ask you to be humble enough to ask Jesus to show you how he wants to use you, how he wants to use your gifts to help further the work of his kingdom. You're not too young or too old to serve. Uh, Chris and I were putting up pictures in our house this last couple weeks, and one of them, some friends made for us a simple phrase that says, bloom where you are planted. Bloom where you're planted. You don't have to think about what, if, and when, but God's given you opportunities right now to make a difference for his kingdom. Okay, does everybody know what this is? WD-40. Who has a can of WD-40 at home? Yeah, most all of us. Um, this, we use this so much at the church, Amanda has this can, this big can, 
in the front office. What is WD-40 good for? Well, it says it stops squeaks. <laughs> it removes and protects. It loosens rusted parts. It frees sticky mechanisms. Now, why am I telling you guys about WD-40? Well, I just asked you the question, didn't I? Are you willing to ask God to show you how he wants to use you and your gifts to further the work of his kingdom? Uh, some of you haven't used those gifts perhaps ever or not recently, and you're kind of stuck. You're kind of stuck, and you're not sure you can get going. And I, I'm sharing that all with you because I want you to hear this. Your obedience to Jesus Christ is like a spiritual lubricant, okay? When you hear what Jesus wants you to do and you begin to do it, the Word of God says he gives you both the will and the desire and the ability to fulfill that work. I'm a ways from retirement, but did you know there's no word in the Hebrew language for retirement? That means none of us in church should ever get to a point or stage where we say, we're done, we're just going to leave it to the younger people. Now, I praise God for the younger people in our church family who are using their gifts, right? I'm so thankful for all of you who are, but none of us are supposed to check out. We're each supposed to be faithful until that day the Lord calls us home. I'm one of those guys that uh, I would rather burn out than rust out. How about you? <laughs> and, and if you're stuck again, if, if you realize you need some help, ask God to help you. Interesting, Jesus says you and I are to be known not by the extent of our learning, but in how we love. And not just how we love him, although that's the greatest commandment, how we love each other in the church and how we love those who don't yet know him. Uh, the men and women and young people whom this world doesn't view as very lovable. Again, your obedience, WD-40, spiritual lubricant that helps you get in a position where Jesus can minister to others through you. Okay? You can't afford to stay stuck. Three on the outline. And now we're going to really pick up speed. Okay? <laughs> when you believe and obey Jesus Christ, something happens in your life. Your life becomes unmistakably different. That means you don't simply become a better version of yourself. You become a new creation. A new creation. You, I want you to remember back in the book of Genesis. Remember how the first man was created out of the dust of the earth? Remember that? Well, let's look at what happens here, verse 6. Having said these things, Jesus spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, so, which means sent. So he went. He went. I'm not going to finish that sentence yet, and I have a good reason. I will in a moment. But after hearing... Jesus, speak these words. This man who had been born blind went. And where did he go? He went to this pool called Siloam, 
which had been built during the reign of King Hezekiah about seven centuries before Christ. Uh, if you look it up on the internet, archaeologists rediscovered it back in 2004. It's about uh, a thousand yards, I think I have a picture of it, about a thousand yards from the temple. And those thousand yards cover a lot of steps. There's a significant difference in elevation. Uh, probably take us 15 or 20 minutes to walk that far. To, to picture it in your mind's eye, it's about the distance between McDonald's and the Empress Boat Club, okay? So if you want to think about what would it be like to walk that far, how long would it take someone who couldn't see to cover that distance? And what kind of thoughts would be going through his mind as he made his way to that well-known landmark? Remember, his, his eyes are caked with mud, a promise that Christ made to him ringing in his ears, being replayed in his mind over and over again. Hmm. Again, I, I tried to get myself in the story, and I, I asked myself something I'm going to ask you. What do you think you personally would have been thinking about if you just heard Jesus say the works of God were about to be displayed in your life? Maybe through your, your heartaches and your hardships through your suffering and your sorrows. What would you be thinking? I have a friend named Gary Jerstead who went to heaven about six weeks ago. Uh, Gary, like the man in the story, blind from birth. Uh, he died after a courageous battle with cancer. And I would say Gary, though he never saw anything, with these eyes, saw far more things than many other people ever see because of his faith, his relationship with Jesus. It's interesting how, how you compensate. If you can't do one thing, your body compensates and figures out other things. Gary had a gift with music, and he had memorized about 5,000 songs. And he played in, in dance orchestras and every, every opportunity that he had to use his gift he would use that gift. He, he led, helped lead worship at the church I served in Brit on several different Sundays. More gratitude, I think, than any other person I've ever met. Uh, when Gary was moved into hospice, and I found out he didn't have long to live, we were already living here in Iowa Falls, and I, I picked up the phone and I called him. And the phone rang and rang and rang and rang. And what was I tempted to do? hang up and say he wasn't available. I let it ring and ring and ring and ring. And finally, my friend Gary answered the phone. And um, Gary was a little bit more emotional than others other times because he realized how close he was to the finish line. And uh, as we talked about it, he says, you know, Stan, I have to admit, at first I was, I was hurting when I, when I was told I have to go into hospice. But then I started thinking about my life and what Jesus has done and what it's going to be like for me soon when I'm in heaven. And uh, I was blessed then uh, to hear Gary tell me what he was most looking forward to. This answer had changed over the years because different times we talked about what it was going to be like in heaven. Because if you're blind all your life on earth, what will you be able to do in heaven that you can't do here, right? See. So he was in the past, always talking about seeing his own mother, you know, seeing 
the faces of his grandparents and other people he knew who were already in heaven. But that day, as we, as we sat and visited on the phone, Gary said, Pastor, do you know what I am most looking forward to? And I asked him what that was, and, and then he said, not just being able to see, but that the very first person I will see is my Savior. He delighted in, in what it was going to be for him to behold Jesus. And, and, and that was because Gary, on this side of eternity, had experienced the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ. And, and Gary often had been a willing vessel through which God had graciously chosen to display his work. Well, okay, back to the story here. The blind man, in this account, he went to the pool of Siloam which was pretty big. It was about the size of three basketball courts. And when he got there, I'm convinced this man didn't just lean over the edge. Why? Jesus said, go wash in the pool. So that's what this man did. If he was going to walk a thousand yards with this promise ringing in his ears, he wasn't just going to splash his eyes a little bit. I'm sure he got in the water and then in verse 7 says, he washed and came back seeing. Remember a minute ago I said, when you believe and obey Jesus, your life becomes unmistakably different? It does. And after returning from the site of the miracle, verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. I've never thought about that much uh, until recent weeks as I was looking at this passage over and over again. But this is an amazing picture. It's also kind of sad. Because no one who lives in this man's neighborhood seems to know his name. Nobody. He's simply known as a man who used to sit and beg. So not only was this guy blind, he was also quite likely, incredibly lonely. The word man in the Jewish language means he has at least reached his 13th birthday, so we don't know for sure. He's either a teenager in his 20s or 30s or 40s. We only know his mom and dad are still alive, but nobody knows his name. I'm going to ask you another question. Do you pass by people every day or every week that you readily recognize, but you wouldn't be able to call by name. You see that person's face in your mind. You know, maybe part of why you're here today is you needed to hear this. Maybe it's a neighbor, a teller at the bank, the lady in the crazy coat you see at the grocery store. Maybe it's that guy who picks up cans, or the young woman who when she comes to church, comes to church by herself. I, I like to make note of a person's name tag when I'm buying gas or paying for my groceries and, and try to make a connection. Um, before the service, I was talking to Dennis, and he quizzed me a little bit about names. And I'll tell you, I'm in the learning process, but, but names are important. They are. You know, you have a name, and everybody in our church family has a name, yes. That's why we have name tag Sundays once in a while so we can get to know each other. Uh, quick 
quick, funny story. Uh, 12, 13 years ago, I was in uh, River Hills Mall in Mankato. Big mall. It was in the food court. And after I got my food, I see a guy maybe 30 feet away. I think, I know that guy. He looks like he's lost a lot of weight. But I know that guy. I think I know that guy. Am I just going to let him go or am I going to say hi? So I decided, hey, I'm going to say hi. And I walk over and I wave at him. And I said, Jim. And he looked at me and he said, Stan. Okay, you're the guy I was looking for. I got up to him and I shook his hand. I said, hey, Jim, how are you doing? He says, my name's not Jim. My name's Stan. That does not happen very easily when you have a name like mine. But it was fun. Got to, got to meet a guy, same name as mine. Okay, point four, we're almost done. Again, when you believe and obey Jesus, your life becomes unmistakably different. And, and I hadn't went through the, the outline with, uh, with Mark before he got up here. But the difference in your life now is that God has blessed you to be a blessing. Verse 10, so they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? They had this question. His life was different. They want to know why. How, was your, how were your eyes opened? Did, did this blind man or the man who was formerly blind technically have to answer their question? No. <laughs> but I can guarantee you this. He wanted to. Just like you and I should want to tell others all that Jesus Christ has done for us. You know, lots of places you go today, you're not going to necessarily be met with a, a smile and a warm word. If you visited many churches, you know that sometimes even the case when you go into a house of worship. Why? Why is that? Well, I think you already know the answer. In large part, it's because there are a lot of hurting people in the world. And you know what hurt people do? They hurt people. Do you know what blessed people do? They bless people. And, and so as your pastor, I say, are you blessed? Yeah, like Mark said, you and I are blessed even more than we know. I need God's grace. I rely on God's grace and his mercy every hour of every day. And the same is true for you. And God has blessed you and blessed me, blessed our church family so we can be a blessing. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up on the platform and, and join me up here for the closing song. A few weeks back, a friend sent me a quote from Walt Hendrickson. Now, Walt wrote, God is not helped by your ability, nor is he hindered by your inability. His concern is your availability. Your availability. Well, this blind man, he didn't turn down an opportunity to tell his neighbors about Jesus, who he probably had met only hours before. And he also didn't pretend to know more than he knew. He simply answered him, verse 11, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Earlier that day, Jesus stopped. And he changed the life of a man who'd been blind from birth. And in the process, what did Jesus do? He brought great and unfading glory to God because that's what Jesus did and that's what Jesus does. 
in and through the lives of those who obey him. Jesus said, we must do the works of him who sent me. We must bring the good news to those who live in darkness. Lord, uh, that's our desire. And I pray that you would help so shape our hearts that we understand how unmistakably different our lives are on account of what Jesus has done for us. Lord, we don't have to be defined by our past, by what we've done or what we don't have. We're your children, and we have been blessed that we can be a blessing. May our hearts reflect that truth, and may our voices magnify it as we close this hour in worship for the praise of your name.